Welcome to the Everyday Journey podcast. I'm your host, Vasily Mazin, coming at you from New York City. The idea behind this project is to interview people who are outstanding in their field, one way or another. The theme will undoubtedly emerge on its own as we go along on this journey, casting a spotlight on one character at a time. My guest today is an educator, a lecturer in a peculiar field. He's a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Amsterdam, covering the subjects of romance and dating. He's lived in various locations around the world, doing research and authored a book. Uh, as a good Amsterdamer, he loves his bicycle, lives in a boathouse, and has a tap with Heineken coming out of it in his kitchen. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Jitze Schurmans. How was my introduction? And did I miss anything important? No, no, it was lovely. People, people would think of me like a hobbit in a houseboat on the canals. <laughs> <laughs> do you really live in the boathouse, houseboat? No. How, how do you say it? Houseboat or boathouse? Boathouse. Do you wish you lived in the boathouse? It's nice, it's big, but it's also very moist. Yeah. Yeah, so... so yeah. And, and you get a lot of tourists coming and having a look at your window. Oh, it's yes. It's like you yeah. live in a museum. So, Yitze, how did you start as an educator? Um, in, in 2010, I graduated from um, the University of Amsterdam studying anthropology. And um, quite a long story, actually, uh, because when I was writing my master, uh, master thesis, I got approached by a publishing house to write a book about my uh, thesis and about my research uh, for the thesis. And so I quit my studies for a bit and wrote that book in four months, five months. Can we, can we um, uh, rewind? And how does the publishing house find out about someone like you to approach you with a book deal? Yeah. So I had a friend who wrote for the university newspaper. Maybe I should mention as a context that my research was about pickup artistry in California. Very specific, right? In California. <laughs> All of California yeah. or just no, the, the San Francisco Bay Area. San Francisco Bay Area. He found it a very interesting topic and wanted to write a piece about his research. So he did. He, he interviewed me and it was quite a big spread in the, in the university newspaper. And that sort of got picked up by national media. And then I got an invitation to talk and come and come and talk in a talk show and this is the by far the best watched television show in the netherlands so i said yes i thought why not i'll, I'll talk about my project and um, so i did and I, I got broadcasted and then of course uh, it was known by a lot more people and actually two publishing houses contacted me at that stage and asked me to write a book. And the funny thing is that the girl who approached me of one of the publishing houses was a former colleague of mine. Uh, when I was still uh, having a, working as a student on one of the, the boats on the canal tours. And You worked um, on a boat? Yeah, I was, as a student I sailed, I was captain of one of the boats that take tourists around the city. In the canals? Uh, and the canals, yeah, yeah the, oh, the, the number one attraction here. Oh, that's interesting. You've mentioned already so much that we can uh, drill down into. For those who don't know, what is uh, pickup artistry? Pickup artistry, 
I would say is about um, theories on how to hook up or date or form a relationship with women. That's pickup artistry and there's mainly men practicing it. I would say it's both an organization it's both it's horizontally organized in that there's a self-help community of of guys that are trying to learn the ticks the, the the tips and tricks of um chatting and flirting and picking up girls and it's also a sort of vertically organized community in which there are professional uh, coaches uh, that have their own practices and their own theories and their own methodologies and that instruct uh, their clients. I see. So you learned about this subject from reading? Yeah, I, I, I read the game in uh, like probably a lot of people have read this book. It's a famous, uh, famous uh, Bible of Pickup by Neil Strauss. Yeah, by Neil Strauss, a bestseller, but not only in the United States, it uh, sold millions of copies all over the world. Also, it was also a bestseller in the Netherlands. And I read that book. I was totally amazed. One, I was fascinated once at one time, but also I wasn't completely sure what to think of it. If one, if it was accurate portrayal if it was real oh you think, I was, you think it was partly made up i i did at that stage yeah i did think it was partly made up and um but i was fascinated and at that time i was about to embark on my master in anthropology and i thought that this would make a great topic to research and to write sort of ethnographic account of this pickup phenomena what are some other yes. topics you've explored uh, before choosing this one for the year for your thesis? Oh, I had so many options. At, at that time, I, I was actually also studying economics. My plan was to finish um, an MBA program. I started an MBA program that same year. I studied both eco economics and anthropology. And while doing that, I got second thoughts. And then I thought about this project of doing a study about the game, about pickup artists. And it was still in September uh, when I was studying uh, business administration at that stage. And I knew I could still switch. So I actually did it. I, I, I switched to anthropology and then did this project. Honestly, I was not... Uh, thinking about doing a master in anthropology, actually. So I never really thought about what project I should do. Yeah, I, I never really had the intention at that stage to continue and do research. Do you think uh, it's uh, specific to Europe or University of Amsterdam, where the subject is even allowed to be explored in, in such depth because I've never met anyone, I've never heard of anyone doing something like this at an American university or some Eastern European or something like that. I mean, of course, the most famous studies come out of British, American and maybe Canadian universities, right? But the Netherlands is not too far behind. There's a fair amount of work uh, that comes out in English out of University of Amsterdam and I believe University of Rotterdam as well, mm -hmm. um, like a professor... Jordan Peterson of University of Toronto, he worked with University of Rotterdam doing the future authoring program uh, where they made students write about their future for the next two, three years as an experiment. Mm -hmm. And that was done successfully in the Netherlands because it seems like it's a little bit more flexible socio-educational environment. 
do you have any comments about is it because you were doing it there like do you think something like this would not be possible at an american university mm. as far as you know I don't know if it's not possible, but I do know that the University of Amsterdam particularly expects students to find their own research programs and write original pro or original proposals. So it really has this sort of tradition of unorthodoxy, being a little rebellious. So there's definitely a lot of room for that at the University of Amsterdam. Um, more than at other universities in the Netherlands. But, I mean, I do know a few people that are working on pickup artistry in other countries. One girl in, in, at the London School of Economics. And there's, an, and there's another uh, a guy, actually, at a, in, in, at a Dutch university. So there, there's more universities that have room for it. But it's definitely true that the University of Amsterdam... Um, is very uh, liberal in that sense. And actually, my, my teachers thought it was a great idea. I had a, a female professor at that, at that stage, and she was very supportive. And um, she, she really said to me, you should do this. You should study this. This sounds like an amazing project. That's interesting, because you use the word liberal. And if you use this word to describe university in the United States, that typically means there will be a lot of pushback on such a controversial subject. And so if, if you did something like this at, a, at your typical left-wing orientated liberal university in the United States, you could get a lot of pushback, a lot of a petition to for you to stop doing your work because it, uh, it has some kind of misogyny built in there, some kind mm -hmm. of unfair treatment of women because at its core, pickup artistry, it's not too far removed from uh, techniques of persuasion and, and possibly deception, certainly seduction. And these things, these techniques are often associated with uh, something negative, something that manipulates people into doing things they don't want to do. Of course, we mm -hmm. don't see it this way, although it can be seen sometimes in such a light. I guess you already said yeah, that, that that was not an issue and no one, no one saw it like this. So maybe the definition of liberal is different in University of Amsterdam or in the Netherlands in general. I do think so. Um, and also universities are very differently organized in the Netherlands and in the United States. For one, I know that... Um, American universities have very big ethical commissions, which have a very large saying in what kind of projects students should or should not do. And um, it takes quite a while for them to grant permission to uh, students to research kind of certain topics. Um, University of Amsterdam, at least at that stage, did not have an ethical commission that um, could sort of challenge your proposals. So it was really sort of up to students what they would research. Of course, there's always questions of morality that you should answer by. And of course, lecturers and professors are not going to supervise projects that they find uh, morally uh, dubious. But um, honestly, I don't think there's anything morally dubious about studying uh, the pickup community. Or any subject, for this matter, no matter how controversial, right? No, not any subject, but there's, of course, um, certain, there is certain research that can harm uh, participants, like certain experiments. And that, of course, 
is something that you should be aware of and you should not do. You have any examples? Well, a very clear example is that um, that very famous um, experiment. What's it? The Stan, 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 Stanford Prison Experiment, I believe the, the name is, mm-hmm. in which um, a group of students were inmates. The other group of students were uh, prison guards, and um, they uh, sort of wanted to see what would happen if good people would turn into bad people. And, and some did and some didn't. But these kinds of studies, experiments are not allowed. And a good reason, because um, you might traumatize people that, um, uh, that, are, that are taking part in it. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there's certain subjects better not be uh, touched. Okay, so um, let me ask you about generally growing up in Netherlands and how it may be different from growing up in other places. You know, maybe think of uh, or try to remember your best childhood moments or something mm-hmm. that surprised you when you uh, ventured outside of your homeland as a child. Okay, well, I don't think my childhood was a very typical childhood in the sense that I come from a quite a large family and the whole family lived on uh, the estate of my uh, grandfather. And we were probably about, about 50 of us. And so what happened was that my, my, my grandfather had a, a trading company in Rotterdam. That's a big harbor port in the Netherlands. And at his 50-something, 50, 50 55th maybe, he, uh, he got a, a heart attack and decided to take it easy. But he didn't really take it easy, but he just quit his job. He sold his business, and from that... Um, uh, and, and then he bought a, a campsite in the middle of the Netherlands. And um, so first my grandparents moved there, then his son moved there, and then um, his daughter, which is my mother, moved there. And they all moved there because it was a very beautiful area and they could live for free on the estate. And so this sort of migration continued. And then when... I was born, there were probably about 50 family members living on the campsite and um, spread out over different houses and some lived in uh, in, in trailers. Uh, it was a, a quite a big campsite, a lot of people. And so I, I spent the first uh, 10 years of my life there. It was great. It was really a sort of community apart from the, the village that we lived in. There were always kids, nephews, nieces to play with. We had a, a very big playground. Actually, there were a couple of playgrounds with swimming pools. And we could basically really do whatever we want. We had uh, cars and motorcycles. And as a child, that was, of course, great fun and freedom to sort of play around there and drive the mopeds through the, through the forests. And um, I have this one great childhood memory of probably being January or so and had snowed and, and, and snow everywhere, of course. And then one of my uncle, he, he got the, the pickup truck out and told us to tie our sledges to the back of the truck. And then he started driving through the forest. And as a child, it was amazing. <laughs> wow. So everyone was related somehow to each other in the community. 
Yeah, we're all family. Big old family. Um, wow. Big old family. So it was all my um, my grandfather's children and their um, spouses and uh, some there and, and my grandfather's nephews and nieces. So big family that um, lived there. Was it based on some kind of cultural blueprint or was it just a self-organized, uh, unique community? It was really sort of self-organized. There was no absolutely no sort of ideology behind it. It was the only ideology was that I think my grandfather that he had all these, uh, this, this property and all the other people could live there. And they thought, great, we can live in this beautiful surroundings for free. <laughs> I think that was the only ideo ideology that was there. A bunch of um, freeloaders. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, um, but uh, yeah, there, there was some self, self-organized uh, community in the sense, there was actually one hill on the, on the, on the campsite and my grandfather lived on top of the hill. And um, he was really the sort of center of the whole community. If you would pay anyone a visit, you would come to his place and then all the uh, other people would meet there. So he was really the sort of um, the, the hub, the father of the family, the patriarch. Well, the grand patriarch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so there was never any incidents like the, that required police to get involved? Not that I know of, no. For actually, for my um, my parents, it was also very easy in that um, there were always tons of relatives that could babysit us. So they never really worried about picking us up from school or sort of finding um, babysitters for the evening or the afternoon. They would just kick us out of the house and we would roam around and then visit a, an aunt or an uncle or... Um, and, and and come back to my parents' place when they were at home. So um, it was easy. And also, if we had a fight with my parents, I remember my sister, She whenever she had a fight, she would go to my uncle's place. And then uh, when she had sort of eased and uh, calmed down, she would come back to my parents. So I guess that um, helped to uh, alleviate a lot of the tensions. That's fascinating. Oh. I had no idea, mm. and I, I've known you for a little bit, <laughs> so that's that's interesting. That certainly doesn't speak to everyone's childhood of your of no, your generation it, in the Netherlands. No, not at all, not at all. But it did did color my perspective on um, on on what a family is or what a family could be, and and how to. Uh, how to raise children in, in the sense that I see a lot of benefits of doing it outside of the the nuclear family of only father mother um, but just okay. to have a community have a community which is a little bit larger than that with uh, maybe other relatives or friends and there you do the upbringing and the family life in a in a larger group in a large a larger sort of corporate unit where did you live outside of Amsterdam? Well, the U.S. a couple of times. Um, I spent on and off, I think, about year and a half California of, of the last five years. Also, about the same time in Hong Kong and um, in, in, in the bits in between in the Netherlands. What are the highlights of 
staying in the US, in California, and in Hong Kong? What stood out for you? Um, in the US, many things. First, of course, the project that I was working on, I was doing um, uh, research on hookup culture, um, partly in the in, in, in the pickup community, but also on, on, on campus. And uh, I was interviewing a lot of people about their uh, usage of dating applications. So it was different things that I was researching at that time. Uh, I met a lot of great, interesting people and heard great stories about romance, about dating, about hooking up, about sex. That was part of it. I met great friends there. And just also the, the general vibe of living in, uh, in in San Francisco. I think it's a very beautiful, peaceful town. Lovely weather. I know a lot of people complain about it, but I don't know why people complain about it because I think it's, it's awesome. It's nearly always sunny, at least where I live. And a very lively atmosphere, very relaxed. Awesome. And Hong Kong must have been very different. Yeah, it was. I, I I remember the first time when I got to Hong Kong and um, I, I didn't really know anything about the city and I took the, the train from the airport right into the into the city and I got out of the the MTR the underground and I was amazed by the crowds it's just so busy there's so many people and it's hot and humid and 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 the buildings are tremendously high and I was just completely overwhelmed and I thought all right. <laughs> I can't. This is impossible to live here for the coming uh, few months. But um, it, it did really started to grow on me all these the, the city of Hong Kong with all these sort of small alleys and you know there's sort of tons of places to get lost in and, and people are very friendly. It's a, it's a very it's a very interesting place to live. In terms of being friendly, how would you rank pe- places where you've spent time? as far as people being friendly and approachable and open? In Hong Kong, people are very polite. But um, I did notice that it, it was quite difficult for me to get to know Hong Kong Chinese people that had lived in, in Hong Kong for all of their lives. It's quite easy to meet expats. And it's very easy to meet Hong Kong Chinese that have lived abroad, but it's quite difficult to meet um, Hong Kong Chinese, that uh, local Hong Kong Chinese. And, of course, um, yeah, I can understand there's so many expats that's coming in in Hong Kong and often stay there very, uh, sh- very, very short, few months, few years, maybe. So I can understand that you have this uh, constant flow of people and, and that you're sort of more focused on uh, the people that live in the town for long term. In San Francisco, how did it feel for you? I did, I did find meeting people in San Francisco and in the U.S. more generally um, much more easy. Uh, people are very open. And easy to talk to, but I did get a sense that it's very easy to meet people, but maybe not that easy to become really close friends. But maybe that is my um, personal experience, and I don't know in how to how far I should generalize from that. The most most people that I really became good friends with in the United States were, I mean, Americans, but not born and born and raised Americans. And I don't know if that's a, a cultural thing that, that I tend to relate better to globally mobile people or that it's really quite difficult to really get to know people in, in, in San Francisco, the natives. Well, yeah, these are very difficult things to study, to, to truly uh, scientifically analyze, right? Because there's so many variables, you know, it's, mm. it could be anywhere 
You can start from the neighborhood where you stayed, you know, what kind of places you frequent, what kind of communities you, you try to penetrate. It's difficult to make a, a clear-cut judgment. If you were, for example, let's say you're a dancer, you, you visit uh, Charleston communities or, or salsa dance communities in different cities of the world, and you have the same program. Right? You get off the plane, you find that event, you go meet people, you dance with them. And then you get the sense of how many people wanted to talk to you, how many people you stayed in touch with. And you can probably get more or less accurate data because your model of cultural interaction is, is the same everywhere. But uh, when people travel without a specific sort of agenda and, and not really meeting people with shared interests, it's, it's hard to tell which countries, which cities are easier, which countries are more difficult. But uh, you probably couldn't, couldn't be unbiased talking about the Netherlands. But what do you think? Are there somewhere in between Hong Kong and, and San Francisco in terms of being um, approachable and friendly? And... Probably... Yeah, a little bit in between. I mean, definitely not the politeness and, and the openness that is very common in sort of in, in the United States is the say the eight the etiquette, the social norms on how you should should behave. People in the Netherlands are in generally not that open. Um, more like people in Hong Kong, I would say. And I also know that it's very tough to get to know uh, people locally. I have a lot of colleagues that are um, you know, from from places outside of uh, the Netherlands, from from the States, um, from Canada, from Japan, and from Russia. And, and they often complain that it's very, very tough to get to know people locally. So maybe this is also just a, a global thing that there are a lot of sort of expat communities all over the world. And, and, and if you're an expat, it's very easy to meet other expats. Um, but it's quite separated from the, the the people that reside locally in the place for long term, the natives. And um, that it's quite hard to, to, to sort of for, form bridges between these communities. Yeah, I can see that. On, on my brief visit to Amsterdam last year, or I sensed there's a general politeness and friendliness, but there's also this kind of a reserved attitude that people are not too eager to get to know you more personally they're they're fine just knowing you superficially unless you give them a good reason to to get to know you better right so there's not like a proactive curiosity that is widespread i think there's a little bit more of that in uh, in the american cities i agree uh, with that so let's uh, go to the topic of you writing that book how did it go what did it take your first book i'm interested in the subject of writing uh, because right. i'm I would like to write a book, but I have several topics I'm kind of pondering. But what could you share with me and the listeners from your experience? Um, well, I never really thought about writing a book. I, I never really thought that I was a good writer either. I, I, remember, I mean, I had quite bad dyslexia for, uh, I still have, and then... On, on high school, I also always had to take special lessons because I couldn't spell and couldn't write. <laughs> uh, so I never really thought about myself or saw myself as a writer. And so when the publisher and publishing house appro approached me and asked me to write a book, I first said, yes, of course, I'll write a book. And then second, I thought, whoa. But how should I write a book? <laughs> I can't even spell. Um, <laughs> spell properly. I really thought I could just 
I thought I'd, I'd give it a good shot. And just I took a few months off and really focused on getting this job done. And I remember the, the, the first the first weeks or months were struggling. The first sort of chapter that I sent to the uh, publishing house, I I really got a harsh feedback. <laughs> and, and and the editor complaining that it was so is, is that how it works? useless. We couldn't do anything with this. Is it how it works? And they they ask you to send the first chapter. Yeah, and um, that was after the contract had been signed. Actually, the contract had been signed on two pages that I sort of wrote as a dialogue, and they liked that. Apparently, I don't know why, <laughs> but they thought it was good enough. So uh, that's how they signed it. So so your sample and, um, was two pages. Yeah, the sample was two pages, yeah. And it was enough for, yeah. for them to say... That was enough. Yeah, go. that was enough. They wanted a two pages and a plan for the book. I gave them that. They said, we're going to do it. Yeah, and then I just started focusing on writing. And I really sort of made a commitment to myself that I would wake up every morning at six o'clock in the morning. I would switch off the internet and write until I was just tired of most of the time and, you know, around late afternoon i would be so uh, so tired i couldn't sort of see any anything on on the screen anymore and i did that for um for four months and every day and um yeah i remember especially because i was not used to writing and um it was a struggle it was really sort of a struggle to to, to keep on going and also when I got a lot of feedback and a lot of feedback, especially in the beginning, was very harsh, very critical. That was not good enough, not good enough. Um, was, it, was it motivating this feedback or, or at the same time, maybe demoralizing? No, demoralizing, yeah. But I also know that um, that is how it works. That's how you get better. I mean, criticism is never, it's not at the moment, it's never good but or never nice. But in the end, you the only thing you can can get out of is that you you learn from it did you know that in the moment yeah i think i've always known that kind of um, from school or intuitively from school i mean i remember when i was was a child and uh like if i was doing things with my father i said i don't know how to do it he said so he said there's one thing you do, you you should know and that is never to give up i i and i still had to finish it I remember that uh, one time we <laughs> bought this sort of uh, thing from the IKEA, right? And it was probably sort of nine or ten, and we had to sort of, and, we, and I wanted to 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 fix the whole um, the cupboard that we bought from the IKEA. I was nine; I didn't really know how to use all these tools, so I I, I started working on it, and then I didn't really <laughs> know how to continue. And I asked my father, "Can I? Can you do it?" And he said, "No, you 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 will do it." And um, he actually didn't let me into the house <laughs> until, until, you, I until you were done. Until I finished. And um, so that was very part, part of my upbringing. It was always like there's, there's one thing that you don't know, and that is that you, you, that you can't do it. You can always do it. You should just try. So from coming from that perspective, uh, also when I was writing a book, there were a lot of times when I got very, when I doubted myself, I mean, constantly, but giving up and not finishing it was really never an option. I thought if I start, just keep on working on it every day from early morning till afternoon, then one day we'll be finished. And 
it actually did turn out to work like that. Yeah, it's exactly how it turned out. Well, yeah. I mean, in the end, that is really what sort of writing is. It's just churning out blocking pages. Out all the, blocking out all the other impulses, switching off, or at least I have to switch off uh, internet, isolate myself, and force myself to sit down and stay and remain seated just force myself to type, just say, at least write uh, five pages a day. And I cannot sort of get up before I write, have written these five pages. I've uh, sat in front of my computer trying to type something and feeling the pain of my brain not wanting to produce anything of substance. And of course, as uh, someone with a semi-perfectionist mindset, I wanted to only output something that made sense, that that had value. Uh, would you say it's a good approach to just type whatever you think you can right now? Yeah, I know these situations very well that I'm behind the computer and I'm sort of blank for an hour and then I write a sentence or write two sentences and then I read the sentence and I think, oh my God, did I just write this? What a lot of crap. <laughs> a child could do better than this. And at these moments, I think it's, it's different from a few years ago, but at these moments now I think, well, you know, I should should not be too harsh on myself. I might not think that at this stage it is great, and it might not be great, but if I just write and try to have fun with it, then maybe something later will turn out, some of the following writing will be good. And I also know that writing is sort of rewriting, you know, it's it's writing, good writing is writing things five to ten times. So if it's not working one time, you, you should not be harsh at yourself because you know that the first bit you wrote is going to be shit anyhow. So why worry about the the thing that's, that you produce being rubbish? Because that is, that, is, that is with all your first writing, it's, it's rubbish. So I think, well, let's have fun with it and... Um, yeah, don't don't focus too much on it being not good enough. Do you have any practical tips for aspiring writers, especially for the ones who haven't written more than five pages yet? Well, the, like I said, I mean, the discipline, the commitment, just do it. If it's not working, if you you think that what you produce is shit, just keep just type and try to have fun with it and you know, try to enjoy the process a little bit. This is fun coming out of my mouth because enjoying the process is what a lot of times I didn't do and I still have uh, uh, struggling with. But I know when you have this mental blockage that this is sort of the mindset that you have to be in. And know that all your, and, and, and third, know that all your writing, it's very tough to have a, a first draft, which is very good. I mean, it takes a lot of rewriting and, and, and editing before text become good. So that's another thing. It does help. Uh, to have a sort of structure for me, to know how the text is going to flow, like which scenarios, uh, which dialogues should come where. So I do make a, a sort of outline of how I want to write an article or write a chapter. And, um, you know, if you have reached your sort of few, your, your, your few pages that you want to write a day, then... Um, Feel free to celebrate. Uh, don't don't continue. Have a cookie. Uh, have a glass of champagne. Yeah. Have a have a glass of champagne. Have a drink. Have a beer. I don't know. 
Were you looking at your favorite books or some kind of uh, helpful books on writing for tips on or knowing how to structure dialogues or punctuation or something like that? Uh, I did have a, a look at when I got the um, the contract from the publishing house. I did actually look at a few authors authors that I really admired and and had a look at how they did it writing dialogues and some I took some things out in sort of. What do you write between sort of lines of text of observations of how people move gestures and, and, and thoughts of people? And that kind of helped. But one thing that didn't help is that I looked too much at their style of writing and, and then wanted to sort of copy their the way they constructed sentences and, and, and their, their vocabulary. And, and that felt very sort of artificial and um that actually did more harm than good, I would say. Took took a while before I got rid of that and sort of found my own own voice in that. Yeah, do look at, at at writing of other people, but more I would say from more technically on how do they build storylines, how do they construct dialogues, and and not so much on the on on, on the words, on the vocabulary, on the style of talking of writing. Are you planning on writing another one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I did. I did. I did. I started a, another a book uh, after I completed the the first. I thought, uh, hey, why not? Let's be. Uh, why I'm a writer now. Let's do another one. And I contacted. Uh, that's quite easy, actually. I, I contacted an, another publishing house, uh, the one that pays better and that is a little bit more prestigious than the other one. And and I I came up with a plan, and they say they said, sure, you can write it. And I started with that book, but at the same time I got a, I got into a PhD program. So then I uh, put that book on the shelf, and it's still there. But I'll, I'm definitely gonna write more, more books for sure. I wonder if it changes you as a reader as well. When you read other books, you maybe take mental note, notes or in your notebook about certain dialogues and twists and something like that. You think it had any effect on you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I look at it much more um, on the technical level. Uh, I, I can be very sort of pleased about uh, how authors construct stories or um, how they sort of uh, deepen out characters and make them really sort of complicated individuals. Um, yeah, these are the that that is these are the, the more things I look at um, currently when, when I read work, work of others. I'm just now, now realizing that it, well, what I know about it is that it's in Dutch. Obviously, I, I haven't read it because I don't read Dutch. But I know it, it was on the subject of pickup artistry. True. Yeah, it was uh, basically a tale of a guy from the Netherlands that went to study pickup artistry in the in the United States and got a little involved in that uh, community over there. That was my story. Very, it was very honestly very close to um, my real experiences. I did sort of twist the the story a little bit to make it a little bit more exciting and more more of a storyline than. Uh, than it otherwise had. What kind of feedback did you get from the, from the readers? Um, a lot of people thought it was very funny. Yeah, so I, I got a quite a feedback on of, of 
that people really sort of laughed out loud about it. And I think it, I think it actually, it is quite funny. It might not be a very well-constructed story or a well-written novel, but it, it is definitely a funny novel. The boss of the, the editing, um, or the publishing house... The chief editor. The chief editor, he's, um, he, he was very pleased. He was quite, quite amazed that it sort of didn't become a bestseller. I don't know if he said that to uh, sort of give me compliments or not, but... Um, okay. <laughs> so, so he wasn't. <laughs> but it had some moderate success, right? It was, it was purchased. Oh, yeah, I sold a few thousand copies. I mean, and, and considering the Netherlands being such a small country, it actually did quite well for, uh, for a Dutch book. But, um, yeah, I, did, I didn't make millions of it. <laughs> Well, there's always another one you can write. For sure. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the book, which was useful. Uh, now, I know there's an exciting area you are always involved in, and that's research of, on dating apps and how they influence relationships and, in the modern age. Mm -hmm. What can you share about this? I know you, you're working on, on a podcast and uh, some journalistic projects. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should uh, briefly introduce this, because... Uh... Last year, I decided to do a little bit more journalistic uh, work. And um, so I started writing a few articles for newspapers. And I had this idea of doing a, a kind of journalistic project um, about the, this impact of all this, this new technology in, in dating apps for, for intimate relationships and how people form intimate relationships. And I really thought of it as a sort of collaborative between university and newspaper and readers in that it should become a platform in which a cross-media platform so we bring stories in in in, in different media formats so text uh, videos animations there's other data visualizations um, there's podcasts indeed and um, uh, readers can contribute uh, their stories they can contribute to by posing questions that we can take, uh, you journalists can take and sort of follow up on. It's really about sort of creating collaborative public. And this was my idea, and I I, um, I pitched it at uh, a national, uh, the national news or one of the national newspapers in the Netherlands, actually the the second largest uh, newspaper here. They concurred, and we started this this project now. Uh, few months and um, the thing that I did is uh, I'm working on now is that I, um, I published a survey and on basis of this survey data as well as my um, uh, interview data from my uh, PhD I write uh, blogs now and then so my last blog was on um, on swipe hours you know I've, I've talked to many people in um, during my research that um, Kind of complained about internet dating that it takes so much time and that all these 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 uh, a lot of these chats are very sort of how do you say very food fertile that you sort of you talk to with somebody one day and then and another day you don't hear of that person again very flaky everything very sort of loose sand and um, so I, my question was, how long does it actually take? How much swiping and chatting do you have to do on average to meet someone? And it turned out that uh, I did a survey now under 2,000 uh, readers so far. Average, 
averages 38 hours before swiping and chatting before you actually meet somebody in real life. And so then I thought, okay, if I can calculate that, I'll calculate the average time it takes for you to find somebody you fall uh, in love with and um, or you have a, a long-term relationship with. And that is actually one month of 38-hour weekdays and uh, work, uh, 38-hour uh, work weeks of swiping and chatting. So one month of so swiping. One month of full-time <laughs> employment. One month of full-time employment to find uh, a, a romantic partner via dating application. A romantic partner with certain parameters. That, that I define romantic partner as uh, a sexual relationship that um, you have been with for three months. So one month of full-time work to find a romantic partner that checks all of your boxes on the kind of a basic list, right? You're attracted to them, you're interested in them, they like you back, you are both interested in sexual relationship, and you see each other regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, probably a myriad of other things that could go wrong, but at the basic level, if you have this, this is a good start. And, and to get there is a lot of swiping, and your thumbs could fall off. Yeah. Yeah, and I was amazed. I didn't actually know that uh, it took that much time. What amazed me even more was that um, you have the Grinder, the gay hookup app. The, the amount of hours of chatting and swiping was pretty close to Tinder, and I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Um, it did surprise me. I thought that would have been very, very few time that guys would just meet up and have sex, but. Apparently, there's also a lot of chatting and swiping involved for many people there. Uh, I was kind of amazed. And and um, the interesting thing maybe for people to to know is that um, there was one there's sort of one big trend of exceptions, and there were all these applications that were uh, linked to a traditional dating website, uh, like the things that you have in America, like uh, OkCupidMatch.com. All these applications, the, the average hour swiping and chatting to meet someone in real life or, or in real time were actually a lot, lot, uh, lot less. Uh-huh. So less, less clicking on, on those sites until you get to that same result. Mm-hmm. A lot less clicking, yeah. These are the surprising findings. These are a few of the surprising findings. Right. Um, and in terms of gender division, like, is it... Similar for both sides, for females well, to to find what they want is versus males. Yeah, actually, there was no difference between them, between uh, women and and men. Um, actually, today I wrote another uh, article on basis of this data on um, the number of um, sexual partners people um, accumulate during one year via these applications. It turned out, I think the average was about three for men and 1.5 or so for, for women. But what I wanted to know is if uh, the ratio uh, of, of sexual partners, men and women, was more even via these dating applications on the net than in an offline uh, situation, an offline context. Because I thought... If there's a double stand, double double sexual standard, you know, in the, in real life between men and women, um, this is probably one of the explanations that men have more sexual partners than women have. 
So you would expect that in this sort of anonymity of these dating applications, man and female sexual behavior will be much more aligned. But that's not the case. As it turns out, I guess it's safe to say that women get more options, but they're a lot more picky. Yeah. And you're saying yeah, it's 1.5 sexual partners on average for a woman in your data sample in a year. In a year, yeah. We're talking about any sexual, sexual engagement. It could be a one-night stand. It could be longer. Yeah, true. Could could be any type of uh, sexual relationship. I just asked about sexual partners that you met via the application in one year period. Do you have any stories or any evidence that your work, your research studies made positive effect on people or, or changed their thinking? I did write an, an article last year about uh, sort of non-normative relationships about people that have uh, not not sort of the average intimate relationship about people that have open relationship about polyamorous relationship about asexual people and i had a i made a whole series about these um, different types of relationships and uh, that was also for a national newspaper that i did that there I got a few compliments, actually, of uh, people that participated in the project and also readers that they really sort of liked that, that their story was brought into the open uh, by just explaining what they did and why they had this relationship without being sort of judgmental about it. I, actually, I, got, I, I interviewed a BDSM community of, or a BDSM family for that series. Uh, about five or six guys that had this letter family. So uh, I, I wrote a little piece about their, about their family, like why they had this arrangement and, and what they did. And then I got a, ma uh, a message from uh, one of the men, one of the, the guys from the letter family, and he mentioned that um, uh, that his boss had come up to him and, and had compliment, complimented him on having a relationship and also or with all these men and also being able to work so hard. And um, then I thought, okay, this has brought a little bit more of open-mindedness and respect to people who do it a little bit differently. I see. Um, so, so your materials, your articles can fill that void of misunderstanding of not having the bridge that connects people who have their private lives that are very kinky, very freaky to some, and their public persona, right? Their work ethics, their uh, sense of responsibility. Some people cut them apart so harshly, right? Like if you're that kinky freak, you know, then, then you cannot be a reliable member of society, right? But they absolutely can be those people, right? It, and we probably don't know a lot about people that we think of as clear cut as, you know, very responsible citizens. They, they may have some kind of a responsible hobby that is best not mentioned in details, right? Yeah, I do, do think that's a theme in, in a lot of my work, both in the academic work and uh, also in my more journalistic work, is to get people, get the readers to get a bit more understanding of people that don't opt for the conventional route of a family and a monogamous relationship. I really write a lot about people that do not have, don't have sort of monogamous relationships 
uh, and don't want that, that sort of family life. Um, and I do think my work in a sort of political sense is really about that, about getting more understanding for people that choose uh, an unconventional, intimate and romantic life. Would you say you meet enough people or it's more rare that are that live in full conviction about about their life choices or even those people who have this sort of non-traditional approach to relationships and, and their sexual choices do they still struggle with self-acceptance and external acceptance and understanding of their own choices like how many of them are fully convinced about their lifestyle well of course the people that i interview for um, newspapers are very um committed to their lifestyle. I mean, if you come out, it's really coming out public for like millions of people, uh, like what you do intimately. So yes, these people have very, are very committed to their lifestyles and are very sure of what they do and why they do it. So one thing I, I do also in these, in these writings is to sort of highlight the negative reactions of people surrounding them. To really put up a mirror and, and and show readers what these judgments are and and what that means and 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 how nasty some of these explicit or implicit judgments can be about people that have a little bit of different intimate life. Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's uh, that answers my initial question about the impact on on the people who uh, read your materials. Yeah, so mm -hmm. this can sort of cast the light that is oftentimes necessary to uh, show that, like you said, put up a mirror in front of people and uh, kind of provide a little bit of normalcy to, to those deviant behaviors, right? Exactly. I can, can illustrate that by uh, a clear example of a, a woman that I interviewed that cho chooses not to have any relationships, that, want, that, that wants to stay single for the rest of her life. She told me a story of her... her and her um, best friend that when she was younger, they made a, um, the, the appointment arrangement that, you know, or agreement that whenever one of them would get married, the other one would be the best woman, the best man, or the best woman in that, in that sense. And um, her, go her girlfriend, her, her friend got married and then refused to ask her as a, as a best friend. And she said, because you don't know anything about relationships. And you know these sort of really these sort of remarks coming from friends can be very very harsh and this I think this anecdote is very telling about how how nasty these reactions can get if you choose an unconventional route for yourself right you can be judged so abruptly and harshly right? yeah, as not being a full person or not being knowledgeable or yeah. But being sort of persona non grata. It could be the opposite. This this person with a, a string of relationships can be a lot more experienced in relationships than someone who's only had two or three in their life. Yeah, true. True, and, and, and at least people that are in open relationships are honest about being not being faithful. Well, sort of fifty percent of probably more like close to 80% of people that are supposedly monogamous relationships are really sort of cheating and, and not telling uh, anyone about it. So, I mean, 
who's the who's who's the honest person here so in closing i'd like to ask you if you're working on anything in terms of personal development and if there's anything you would like to improve in your own lifestyle oh there's always tons of things that i can think i can be more i can be more friendly i can be i can be nicer i can be more generous how can you be nicer uh, than that uh, i can be more funny <laughs> <laughs> that um, you could work on <laughs> and, yeah, yeah 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 you probably know <laughs> i'm teasing okay behavioral improvements huh? i think really honestly i'm not not having particular goal that i need to do this and this before next week but i do think every day when i wake up okay i'm gonna really be on all these fronts like nice friendly outgoing i'm just gonna do my best and and all the sort of criticism that i get from friends or girlfriends or people from work are really sort of that is the, the, the moments that you can grow these are the, 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 the sort of things you should really listen to and, and and cherish and never get never get upset or angry about criticism but instead take it as a lesson about things that you can improve on so you do take uh, criticism from people you care about as uh, guidance yeah but also from people I don't care about I think any type of criticism on yourself is always very good to reflect. Maybe there's a, a, a point of uh, a point of truth in it and listen to it and um, think about how you can sort of be a better person, be a nicer person, be a more loving person, being a more fun person, more outgoing, more generous. In one of the future episodes, I'd like to come back to the topic of criticism. I think it's it's actually a topic of high interest for me because I, I've started in my head dissecting different types of criticism or more generally feedback, right, uh, and, and where it comes from. But that's for another time. I think we, we could probably have a nice productive conversation about that. Um, but at this stage, I want to thank you for being here with me and for gracing our listeners with your thoughts and experiences. And hopefully well, you'll inspire some people who want to uh, write or educate or visit Holland. Well, hopefully, yeah. Hope, uh, well, I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, hopefully there's some people that, um, that, that take, something, take something out of this conversation. I'll uh, add some links to, to the websites that you would want to share um, in the show notes. Maybe some materials. Oh. And if, if someone wants to go, go forward and, and translate your articles from Dutch to English, they can do that too, probably easily with uh, Google Translate. Definitely so. And you have some materials in English, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do write in English as well. Well, thank you, Yitze. You're welcome. And uh, till the next time. <laughs> <laughs>